0: This show is distributed by some Next time.
1: Welcome to episode 168 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Patrick Collison, co-founder of Stripe. The way that we met Patrick was because I decided to implement Stripe on Plugio.com, move away from PayPal. And honestly, I just thought the experience was so good that I contacted the guys and said, would you like to do a podcast? So Patrick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much. It's uh, great to be on. Yeah, Justin,
0: you actually wrote a blog post that... Did really well on Hacker News about the experience, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I, I just temporarily forgotten about that. It did, I guess that must have driven some traffic to, to Stripe as well.
0: Cool. So, uh, well, Patrick, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, we're both really excited to talk to you because not only did uh, Justin implement Stripe for Plugio, we've implemented it in our new uh, startup that we've been working on called Anyfoo. And yeah, it took, it was nothing to set up, which it was really nice. Um, so I have to commend you on uh, building a really clean simple API.
2: It's really Java. glad to hear that because uh, we, we've we gone through a lot of iterations on the API and we, we really put a ton of effort into trying to figure out uh, what would be sort of most simple to implement and also just kind of most simple to, to get your head around it. So the first time you see it. Um, and I guess more than a lot of online services, there's obviously sort of a lot of things you to be pretty careful about in, in payments, uh, things like PCI and security and item potence and making sure you don't have duplicate charges and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so sort of balancing all those considerations while then making it just really simple the very first time you see it uh, is, well, at, at least for us, it, it definitely wasn't immediately obvious. And so the API we have now, sort of the, this kind of RESTful server-side API combined with Stripe.js kind of in the browser, that's really the product of Probably four or five sort of major iterations.
0: Yeah. So the um, according to Wikipedia, your stated aim is to make integrating Stripe checkout as easy as Google checkout or PayPal, but without sucking. <laughs> <And> <laughs> uh, I thought that's, that's a great that's a great line. Um, <laughs> so
2: so they, they aren't actually our words, uh, um, though. they're definitely kind of sympathize with the sentiment. Um, really. I guess the way we're coming from it is that we, we always felt it was just too hard to build things on the web that you charge for. Like at the deepest level, transactions on the web don't work very well. And so, I mean, we're kind of implicitly competing with PayPal and Google Checkout and things like that to the extent that sort of they too are powering transactions. But we sort of don't really... Think about them all that much, and that they're they're just not very good solutions. And so we really spend all of our time sort of thinking about, well, what would an ideal solution look like here? Like, why is it that more people and more developers don't charge for things online? Instead sort of what are the impediments and roadblocks for them? Uh, and that's really sort of what we, yeah, what what, what we worry about and what we wonder about and spend all our time debating um and so really i think it's it's not so much competing against google checkout and paypal and whatever else is as kind of inertia uh, or or advertising or building an iphone app or like something else uh, or or, or some, something else to monetize or something else to uh or i mean even just like the the inertia of you don't even bother building the thing in the first place
1: how long have you been working on this project from from when you first thought of the idea
2: um So John and I started working on it sort of part-time when we were in school, uh, and that was back almost exactly two years ago, actually. Uh, And so we we had sort of a couple of side projects going at the time. Uh, I also worked on uh, a series of iPhone apps sort of under the umbrella name Encyclopedia, and they stored a a copy of Wikipedia on the iPhone or the iPad, and you could sort of read it without needing any internet access, which is kind of cool. Uh, and so we were working on those and sort of translating them to different languages and whatever else, and, and that was sort of fun. And then we we were kind of debating this problem of just why it was so difficult to build things on the web that that accepted payments. Um, and we we decided to sort of build a really basic prototype of Stripe as as just I don't know. Uh, really to sort of explore the space and figure out, well, could you actually solve these problems or just was there sort of inherent difficulty or were the regulatory burdens sort of vastly insurmountable or or something like that? And so we built, um, like I say, the very first prototype almost exactly two years ago. And then for sort of the six months after that, we really just kind of uh, played with it in a sense and that we we pushed in various directions and showed it to friends and uh, sort of them to show their friends, whatever, really to kind of see how it developed and how people reacted to it. And then by the, the subsequent summer, which I guess was a year and a half ago, we started to become kind of convinced that you could actually solve this. And there was actually something pretty interesting here. Uh, and so we've been working on it full time for a year and a half.
0: Um, when you first started um, working on it, I mean, And you had to build some kind of a prototype. I mean, don't you? You have to have some like a merchant account or something in place. I mean, how did you guys?
2: Yeah, have some uh, kind
0: of a back end to even
2: build on top of. So, so we partnered uh, with a a pretty small existing payments company, and they sort of handled all the payments. Structure and we were able to just kind of concentrate on building the technology stack uh, and that de- that definitely had big limitations in that because sort of we weren't in complete control of everything we definitely weren't able to sort of comply uh, excuse me provide the sort of complete end-to-end experience that we wanted to build but it was sort of adequate for for the first prototype uh, and it enabled us to get kind of a handful of users on board and and experiment with that and sort of see how it went then once we became convinced that the you know, there really was something here and we should kind of focus on it and, and make it really good. Then we immediately started working on bringing all that stuff in house and sort of working directly with the banks and and everything else.
0: Right. So when you, when you were working on this prototype, how far along, um, were you before you actually had, you know, somebody try and perform a transaction on, it? I mean, imagine it sounds like you, kind of were crafting something like an API and, and everything, but before you could actually offer yeah. it to someone to say, hey, actually use this on your site.
2: So the first transactions went through it really early on, um, about, like literally about two weeks after we started working on, on the prototype. Um, John and I actually, <laughs> we, so when we were in school, we were, we were in different schools, but both of them uh, gave us the month of January off. And so we decided to just go on holiday somewhere for the month of January and, and build this prototype. Um, and we'd read a couple of blog posts and different things on the web describing Buenos Aires as, as a really fantastic place to go and hack uh, in that there's really good weather. And I mean, this is January, so in the northeast of the U.S., obviously the weather isn't all that great, but it's, it's summer in the southern hemisphere. So really good weather, and it's extremely cheap. And sort of surprisingly, and for reasons I don't really understand, pretty much everywhere has Wi-Fi and it's sort of very laptop and hacker friendly. Um, and the restaurants are open until like two AM, and the bars are open until five AM. And and so it sort of very much hits like the excuse me fits the the hacker schedule. Uh, and right. so we decided to go to Buenos Aires uh, as poor students uh, for January. And we built the first prototype there, mostly kind of hacking in cafes. And then about sort of two weeks into that trip, uh, we got our first live user. Uh, and that was actually Ross Boucher uh, from 280 North. Uh, they had built a product called 280 Atlas, and they decided to charge for it using Stripe. Um, and, and sort of in a funny eventual twist, uh, Ross ended up joining Stripe uh, back about nine months ago or so. So this is a sort of nice... Wow. Arc to that story, where sort of our first user actually became one of the the first uh, employees of Stripe.
0: No, no, was he a friend of yours, and you just sent him an email and said, "Hey, please give this a try. We're trying to work out the bugs." Or how did that happen?
2: It was, was something sort of like that. Like I'd, I'd known him for a couple of years, and we were pretty good friends. And you know, it was sort of this nice confluence of things where we were working on a payment system, and they were looking for a payment system. And so I sort of suggested, you know, hey, do you want to try this out? Uh, I didn't really emphasize kind of how early on it was. Uh, and he would come with sort of feature requests like, hmm, I would like to be able to refund a transaction, or I'd like to be able to see a transaction, or you know, you should really build that functionality that like actually transfers the money to my bank account, uh, and, and fairly. Right. Uh, you know, uh, f- fairly basic feature requests like this, but I think overall it, it actually worked out really well, and that you know, it was an extremely easy setup process for them, and they they really liked the API, and and we sort of got real feedback and kind of pressure to build actually useful things like right from the very start, rather than right. sort of spinning our wheels for you know a year trying to anticipate and guess what people might like to have. Sure.
0: So so you're down there in in, in Argentina for what a month, and you, and you start working. I mean, did you? was it then you decided to push it into like a real company i mean what were you thinking
2: no it was that 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 really came later uh, so we we built this and and you know it was, it was fun to build and we i mean it, it seemed kind of interesting but we weren't sort of entire, i guess we weren't convinced of a few things one we weren't really sure sort of how big a problem this was like maybe there would be a nice niche for a small little extremely developer focused payment system but perhaps that could never be something all that significant um and, and we also weren't entirely convinced that we actually could provide the user experience that we wanted to, and that we could provide Ross with sort of this really streamlined setup experience. But in large part, we could do that because we knew Ross, and we knew he was trustworthy, and uh, they were running a very legitimate business. Could you do that for sort of arbitrary people and businesses across the web? And could you do that for people outside of the US? And, and I mean, there's all these other sort of questions. Uh, and we we definitely didn't at that point sort of know the answers to these and and weren't sure that they were even solvable. Um, PayPal obviously has acquired a pretty kind of, uh, a pretty mixed reputation uh, because of their sort of very uh, aggressive fraud systems and, and fraud decisions. And so, so, so it was really, it wasn't until that summer after sort of thinking about it and watching things for, for six months that we were uh, that we really became sure that, in fact, this could be a pretty big thing, and there was a, a pretty big problem to solve here, and that we we felt like we could actually provide sort of the user experience that we sort of idealized and had thought up of as, you know, the best possible thing.
0: Right. Um, And, and so, okay, so you get back on break. I mean, so I guess you worked on that for what, you know, the rest of the school year kind of on the side? Yeah, Is that, yeah and just exactly. Kind of picking up a few users here and there?
2: Yep, exactly. And, and one of the things that sort of, indicated to us that there, there was sort of something interesting here, was that our, our friends who were using it asked if we could, you know, or if they could invite their friends and sort of those people then invited their friends, and it, it very much spread through, a, through this word of mouth process. Uh, and that was kind of surprising to us because, I mean, it's, it's a payment system, not a social network. And so it's not immediately obvious that you would have any kind of virality whatsoever. Uh, but it, it became clear that sort of everything else was so bad and so painful to work with that, that people actually were kind of selling this to their friends.
1: Right, right. Justin, you, said, you had a question? Yeah, I'm I'm just curious like at at this stage um you're you're bootstrapping the company. Um That's right. Did did you kind of have any idea in mind that you would go for funding or were you thinking you were going to bootstrap all the way? What was your perspective on that?
2: I think from the start we were pretty conscious that there was a very good chance that we would seek funding uh, just because uh, things are kind of different for a payments company in that Having having capital is, is sort of very valuable to smooth over kind of anything bad that might happen and you're sort of very cash flow sensitive in general. You need to work with a lot of banks and, and kind of pretty traditional institutions and they care much more about sort of demonstrated institutional credibility more than they do about, you know, your your really good conversion rate or something like that. And and sort of showing them that you're sort of a successfully bootstrapped company isn't isn't gonna sort of necessarily provide them with the reassurance that they want. And on top of that, sort of, I mean, kind of, we didn't look all that great on paper. I mean, we were just sort of two students. uh, And it was, uh, I mean, from a bank's perspective, we we thought it would be pretty hard to uh, convince them that sort of we were worth partnering with and worth partnering with in sort of a pretty meaningful and and substantial and and kind of senior way. Um, And we thought that Getting funding might be sort of a, a nice way to help with that, and so I think I mean for, for other things we've worked on, we have bootstrapped us like the encyclopedia thing I talked about. That was entirely bootstrapped, um, but but I'm pretty sure that like right from sort of day one with the with Stripe, uh, we we sort of definitely knew that it might make a lot of sense to take some funding.
0: So, at what point? Um... Did you begin the fundraising process? I mean, how, how long had you been working on it? How many, say, active user accounts had you had set up or transactions? Or what, what, kind of right. where were you in your company's lifespan before you initiated that
2: process? Right. So we were, we were pretty early on. Uh, we took our first money over that summer. We never really did a, a kind of a formal fundraising process. Um, uh, the, the very, well, the, the very first investment came from Y Combinator, And uh, that we, though we didn't go through sort of a proper Y Combinator batch, and and I guess our previous company Octomatic was also YC funded, and that sort of did go through the proper batch process. And yeah, so
0: we're gonna. I think we're gonna have to jump back. We're gonna have to do like the lost thing where we play like (laughs) the the lost. You know where they play the engine, the airplane engine sounds, and we go back. (laughs) I'm sure Justin (laughs) can do that. (laughs) So we'll do that, and we'll we'll go back and we'll talk about that whole process. But for now, we'll just say that. You. we'll just start with how you got involved with Y Combinator in regards to uh, uh, Stripe. So how did that happen? How do you not get funded but not go through the process?
2: um, There's no sort of great story there. It really was just that I was at school at the time, and I'd known Paul for a couple of years. And we actually knew each other sort of originally more through Lisp than through Y Combinator, and uh, I, I sort of had conversations with Paul, where I mentioned that you know we were thinking of doing a new startup, and you know we weren't exactly sure what that would be or how it would work, and and they offered to invest. Uh, and so then, kind of as soon as Stripe actually became uh, like a, a proper legal formal company, then then they made that investment. Um, and I, I'm sure I think we would have been sort of welcome to go through the YC sort of batch process if we would wanted, but I guess the the timing didn't really work out. And because we'd been through it before, we sort of. Uh, we had at least some of the benefit, and so it wasn't like I think for somebody who hadn't done Y Combinator, it would be a huge loss not to go through sort of the proper program. But uh, it was, I guess, a little bit less of a loss just because we'd done it before. Feels like
1: a little bit of a miracle function there. Like we told Paul Graham our idea, and they decided to invest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 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 yes, and as when we go back, when we go and when we time travel back uh, in time, and, and we and we hear about the backstory, it'll kind of I think make a little more sense but we'll just uh, kind of put that on hold for now cuz uh, we don't want to get distracted from the stripe story itself but sure. what um, did was it the same kind of uh, deal where they give you like i don't know it's a very small amount it was like 20 30 grand for or something yeah, total, yeah
2: exactly like, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was that kind of thing um, okay. and, and, and yeah like we, we knew all the yc folks really well and so i mean we we were very convinced that it was a it was a worth, worthwhile deal and then later that summer, I happened to get introduced to Peter Thiel uh, and went and met with Peter. And I mean, obviously, it was sort of very relevant to our interests to, like, even outside of an investment con- context, have a conversation with him and sort of hear his thoughts about payments and what they'd done well at PayPal and sort of for, given the, or for, for the particular problems that they had, sort of why they happened and, and all these kind of things and what he thought had sort of changed since they did PayPal. And we had that conversation, and it was really interesting and really helpful. Um, and at the end, he he offered to invest in Stripe, uh, and so he uh, he became sort of our first kind of substantial investor. And in that obviously, YC don't invest a ton of money, whereas he invested a little bit more. See that that's
0: right there's where your 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 miracle function is because. Um, Peter Thiel, for people who don't know, is one of the um, co-founders of PayPal, and he's like a billionaire. runs with Clarion Capital or something. And yeah, that's right. He's a really big deal. You know, you don't just like bump into him, <laughs> 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 and so or Elon Musk for that matter. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess because you'd been through Y Combinator and stuff, maybe you you knew you happen to know
2: the right people. Yeah. But is that is that just what happened? Is sort of, uh, as, as it happens, I I had actually just run into Peter Thiel before uh, at, at a Y Combinator dinner that he spoke at. Um, but I think that in general, sort of the valley is like one of the really nice things about it, and one of the things that I really didn't realize for a long time and was sort of like a very different experience to me, given that I grew up in, in rural Ireland, uh, is just that it's so connected and so small, and people are generally kind of very willing to give unknown and kind of people with uncertain prospects a shot and like uh, we'll give them sort of a chance. They'll, they'll hear them out. Uh, and so with Peter, I mean, I don't know, probably someone had told them that, you know, we were somewhat promising or whatever, but uh, like there was no huge barrier to getting in touch with him. And he was sort of more than willing to, you know, sure. I'll, I'll sit down for an hour and, and chat with you about payments. Um, and that's really nice. And sort of, I've, I've had this experience kind of again and again of, of that or experiencing that willingness Uh, On, on sort of behalf of different people to sort of have that conversation, Uh, and I know I think that's that that's possibly the best part of Valley.
1: Well, it's also I mean it's America I think as well. I mean America just has this real can do attitude. I know from living in Ireland myself for thirteen years, and also living in England. Oh, really? Did yeah, right, yeah, and in Dublin and um, in in England, same thing. You know, people do have this attitude of well. You know but it can't really work mm-hmm. you know they, they kind of have that attitude that's their starting attitude whereas yeah. here the starting attitude is yeah you can do it
2: yeah i i think it's really true actually and as it happens in the really early days we we met with a couple of banks in ireland uh, just, I mean, I, I happened to be in Ireland at the time and decided to meet with them just like on the off chance that sort of they thought that this was a good idea and, you know, maybe they can support it or maybe they could be the back end to it or maybe, you know, they'd be the back end to it in Europe or, or who knows, just decided to kind of sound them out. And <laughs> it was overwhelmingly clear immediately that, like, this this was so far away from something that that they'd even consider doing that, that even even having like the half hour conversation was almost pointless. Uh, like I almost felt embarrassed asking uh, in that they, they they so overwhelmingly clearly did not care. Uh, and so, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's sort of a different mindset between UK and, or excuse me, uh, UK and Ireland and the US.
0: So I, I see from your list of investors that you it wasn't just Peter Thiel and Y uh, Combin, but also Elon Musk, Google, uh-huh. Sequoia Capital, Andreessen Hor- Horowitz, um uh-huh. And Ronway, uh, and Ron Conway's as uh, beef mm-hmm. angel. I mean, so was this just something where just over time, people you get introduced to people and they said, hey, i like throwing throw in money? Or did, did uh, some uh, formal ra- uh, round get sort of organized?
2: So there was, we, we did do a formal round towards uh, the end of that summer. And that's the round that Sequoia and Andreessen Horowitz and Elon uh, and maybe one or two others are not thinking of, um, invested in. Uh and so yeah we we, we did sort of a- after Peter Thiel invested we decided to sort of do something a little bit more formal and and that's when all of they came in. You
0: know and I notice you, you you only raised 2 million which seems kind of on the small side mm-hmm. for those kind of players and especially since it's sort of well, after someone like Peter Thiel already puts yeah. his mark on it. I mean did you did you purposely want to keep it small for that at that
2: stage? We did. We did. Um, it, it was still sort of at the kind of early exploratory stage. Um, I mean, sort of things looked very promising. We got lots of good feedback and we had sort of a good initial product in place, but, but still it was early days. And so I think that having, uh, while we weren't going to bootstrap, I think it is really dangerous to have too much money too early. Uh, and so I think keeping that round small sort of instilled a fairly nice discipline and mindset in us. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that was definitely intentional.
0: There was something called, I think, the Startup Genome Project or something, and they did a big yeah. analysis of all these startups that succeeded and failed, and it was something mm-hmm. along the lines of the biggest predictor of failure was having bad money, which was money, having a lot of money before you had true product market fit, or yes. however you want to call it.
2: Totally. I, I 100%... or uh, I, I haven't seen that kind of particular study, but the, that that definitely resonates with my experience, and that's unquestionably sort of one of the things we wanted to avoid with Stripe.
0: Right. So... um. First of all, that must be awesome to have people like that that you can actually talk to, have a conversation with Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, and Ron Conway and Paul Graham. I mean, that must be pretty. Totally. Pinch yourself and go, I'm actually sitting around t- hanging out with these guys.
2: Yeah, there, there's definitely uh, fr- frequently some elements of that, um, and I guess t- to their credit, you know, they don't sort of make it feel like that, uh, in that they're they're all sort of reasonably normal and and kind of authentic and nice and pleasant people. But but yes, it is. It 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 is really nice that sort of we we've ended up here and we appreciate it a lot.
0: Why don't we uh, get into um, some discussion about Stripe itself? Um, sure. You know, you've raised money and you're working on it. Um, I guess the first thing I'd ask is, you know, what was the technology stack to, to, that you were building this on? I mean, what mm-hmm. were
2: the you know
0: languages, databases, yep. hosting? How, how did, what
2: what you know what did you use? So we. Uh, we use, or we write most of our software in Ruby. Um, we've never used rails, uh, but we do use Ruby. We initially built kind of the first version of the management interface, uh, which is sort of the core thing that you interact with when you're setting up your shop account, um, in Sinatra and the API, we've sort of evolved the framework our, ourselves, um, for, for, implementing it. It's, it's largely based on top of rack, and we sort of have a lot of rack middleware for for doing different things. Uh, in terms of databases, we use both MongoDB and MySQL. Um, we it's, it's kind of interesting for us in that people talk a lot about things like uh, you know partition tolerance and robustness and availability and all these things. And we really care about some of a very particular kind of, uh, of robustness um, and durability in our data in that kind of the most harmful thing for us is when we lose data and don't know about it, uh, which basically means that asynchronous replication is really problematic for us. And so I mean, MySQL's kind of standard answer to replication is indeed asynchronous replication. Uh, in other words, kind of, you can uh, commit a transaction to your you know, your database master, and that operation returns success before it's been replicated to any other replicas. Which means that sort of, if immediately after that transaction were committed, uh, the machine were to blow up or lose power or whatever, you you could just lose that data, and the application would sort of never know about that. And, and so that's kind of something we we worried about quite a bit early on. We looked into various options like MySQL Cluster, um, which has somewhat better guarantees in this area. But MySQL Cluster just isn't all that. It, it, it's kind of this abandoned project uh, within MySQL, uh, as best we can tell. Uh, the Oracle acquisition didn't really help much. I remember chatting to people in the IRC channel, and you know, it seems like there's basically one guy maintaining it. Um, and so that wasn't super promising. Uh, we looked into Postgres a little bit. Oh, and I, actually I should mention, there are some patches from Google uh, which they wrote for YouTube that sort of do semi-synchronous replication for MySQL. Uh, and that sort of improves the situation a little bit, but, but it doesn't really entirely fix it. We um, looked into Postgres, and at the time especially, like again, this is about a year and a half ago, uh, before I think the, the, the latest major release of Postgres really improved the replication story. but But kind of prior to that, uh, their answer to replication was, in many ways, even worse than MySQL's, and and you know it, it really wasn't all that viable an option for us. Um, MongoDB actually has a fairly decent answer to replication and the form of replica sets where they can, in fact, provide that guarantee that sort of from the perspective of the application, a write will not succeed until it has been replicated to more than one uh, database uh, replica. Um, and so the eventual architecture we ended up with is, is basically a mix of MySQL and MongoDB. And so far, that's worked out pretty well for us. It's uh, fun. It's of, funny,
0: It's the same thing uh, we use for Uber, <laughs> oh, although now I guess exactly. we use Redis for a lot of stuff, but yeah okay interesting uh, yeah
2: and And then in terms of hosting we we use a mix currently of machines uh, co-located in sort of a you know a, a cage that we control at a data center and e c two. And the vast majority of our infrastructure runs on EC2. And then we do the card storage uh, just in this kind of secure, locked down environment. And so basically every API request to Stripe is actually proxied through this card storage infrastructure. It removes card details and sensitive information, tokenizes them, replaces them in the API request, and then proxies or reverse proxies, I guess, that to EC2. And this is the really nice property that, like the vast majority of our code, maybe 99 point, I don't know. 5% or something is like, cannot get access to credit card numbers no matter how horrendously wrong it, it goes. And, right. and that that's, just like really reduces the, the, the scope of security a lot.
0: So, how much thinking went into that process um, for you guys? I mean, was this something that was evolved over time or did you, did you sort that out really early on?
2: It evolved a little bit, like all things, um, but but that infrastructure, or like that basic setup actually was. Was actually put in place at a fairly early stage, and and that kind of separation between the parts of Stripe that can access credit cards and those that can't uh, has been in place for, for over a year now. Um, and obviously, sort of, there's been a, a lot of kind of architectural upgrades and improvements sort of within each uh, within each part of or within within both of those kind of individual parts. But sort of that that fundamental uh, split is is actually something we we put in place quite early on.
1: Within within um, traditional banking systems, there's a lot of post processing reconciliation scripts. Yeah. Um, do you do that kind of stuff with Stripe? I mean, is yeah, you found- we do,
2: we do, uh, and we actually wrote our own event processing system uh, called Monster to to help deal with this. Uh, and actually, That's Gray, a great name. We <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it makes for great method names like feast and and you know gobble <laughs> and whatever else. Um, And yeah, Greg, one of our engineers, actually gave a talk about this at Mongo SV uh, back, I think it was either late November or early December. And so you're you're right. Yeah, there's a ton of sort of asynchronous job processing and sort of a post hoc kind of annotation and augmentation of uh, database objects, you know, as we start to sort of get reconciliation information back from sort of the various backend systems and structuring that sort of such that it's robust and that, you know, the jobs are, you know, uh as 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 idempotent as possible um has has been something we've sort of gone through again a bunch of iterations on and i don't think there are any sort of uh, we we do the best job we can to sort of abstract over the fact that many of these systems aren't all that well architected themselves uh, in that there's a lot of sort of incoming data for us that comes from you know sftp sources or uh well some of them now finally are coming over kind of ssh connections um, and they're all kind of these weird file formats devised in the eighties, you know, when somebody was rushing this COBOL program and they're kind of poorly specified and ambiguous and whatever else. So we've we've tried to build sort of sane abstractions on top of that and sort of abstractions that when there's a failure will kind of cause that failure to they will will minimize the consequences of that failure. But that that, that, that part is definitely an an ongoing process.
1: Right.
0: So one thing is the is the name Stripe. It's th- mm-hmm. kind of an interesting choice because it doesn't seem to have a direct meaning or connection, unless I'm missing right. it, which could possible. So, how did you come up with the name? And you know, how, <laughs> you know, how did you get the domain? And what was the what was the process there?
2: Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a funny question and a, a good question actually. And there is in fact a story here. So when we first start. Working on Stripe, we we weren't called Stripe and we definitely didn't have the domain Stripe.com. Uh we were actually called slash dev slash payments. Uh,
1: which,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I like Stripe a little better. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, well, I mean sort of you the, the idea was basically there should be a payments API that sort of is is just as easy as you know catting something to slash dev slash payments. Um And instead of it, it was kind of cute, and people sort of smiled when they saw it written. But it had had many, many, many problems. (laughs) Uh, One is the fact that it's horrendous to say it. Two, it sounds sort of like Amazon DevPay, which is one of their payments products. Three, most web services and and, uh, most... Database schemas do not or do not allow slashes and company names. And so we couldn't, for example, I mean, we used like a literal slash character and we couldn't actually say incorporate the company as slash dev slash payments, because the state of Delaware isn't too hot on slashes and company names. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so we we kept running into all these things and when we were speaking to external partners or banks, or whatever, they would, you know, they'd be all enthusiastic and then we'd tell them the name and they just get this kind of confused look in their faces and yeah. Um, <laughs> So we decided again uh, back, I guess, just over a year ago uh, or uh, just, just just in fact after that summer where we sort of decided to work on full time that we also need to change the name. And we spent a couple of weeks sort of debating different names and we had names like Paystack and Paydemon and all these like really actually terrible names. And kind of every night we'd be working at the office until late and sort of around 11 o'clock the conversation would shift to, man, you know, <laughs> what should we change our name to? And um, eventually we started just like thinking of random words, uh, like words that didn't have any connection to what we were doing uh, at all necessarily. And, and just sort of looking at, you know, what, what was present on the domain and, you know, seeing how it felt and everything else. And, and eventually we came across uh, or, we, or we thought up of, of Stripe. Uh, and, you know, we didn't immediately love it uh, in that I remember sort of initially giving a fairly lukewarm reception, but the more we thought about it, the more it actually seemed like a pretty good name in that it, it sounds sort of good and it's easy to spell, and it's sort of, it, it's a, on the one hand, sort of strongly visual in that you can definitely kind of picture a stripe, but it's not kind of tied to a particular stripe. Like no one company or brand or entity has sort of claimed the metaphor of a stripe as its own, and it sort of it has some kind of feeling of motion or dynamism or something to it, and, and best of all, the .com domain wasn't actually actively in use for anything at the time. Uh, and so we emailed a little bit back and forth with the owner, and turns out he was uh, an MIT alum. <laughs> and so there's actually wow. a bit of a connection there. And then we told them a little bit about what we were doing, and we eventually agreed a sale, and we were able to buy it. Um, and we were also very fortuitously and kind of surprisingly able to get GitHub.com/Stripe and Twitter.com/Stripe slash and sort of claim most of the important real estate on the internet around the name Stripe. And well,
0: how much? How much did it cost you?
2: Um, it, it really wasn't all that much. Uh, we, we, we probably shouldn't talk sort of about the specifics of it, but I mean, it was <laughs> uh, like it. It was tens of thousands rather than hundreds
0: of thousands. Okay. All right. So it wasn't like, you know, 200 bucks. It wasn't 200 bucks. It was real money. It was like you had to have investment to buy a money, a domain like that.
1: Yeah. Because from the the moment I heard the word Stripe in conjunction with payment systems, I instantly had the vision of a Stripe on the back of a credit card. And I thought that's exactly what you meant. You just meant, oh, the the credit card, the Stripe (laughs) on the back of a credit card. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, well. So actually, I mean, you're you're right. There's definitely sort of that uh, association with the magstripe and the credit card. But actually, that that was something that we didn't like about the name, and we sort of was almost enough reason for us not to adopt the name Stripe, and that we didn't want to pick something that was too closely tied to sort of the existing infrastructure of of credit cards uh, in that, I mean, Stripe is a thing that enables you to accept payments online, and we don't specifically want to be a thing about sort of accepting this particular implementation of credit cards online. And, I mean, it's a fairly, I think, uh, Western-centric view to think of payments and as simply credit and debit cards, and that in many other parts of the world, all kinds of other payment instruments and things that have different physical, uh, uh, you know, existences uh, and things without mag stripes exist. So is
1: that a hint? Is that a hint at the future of Stripe? Then you're going to be broadening.
2: Uh. I mean, it is the extent that sort of yes, we're we're absolutely about enabling payments on the web, and if that's with a credit card or if it's with your bank account or or who knows what, I mean we care about that too. Like really, we want to enable developers and people making things to accept payments, and we will sort of happily work with whatever the popular uh, payment instruments that support that are. If that remains credit cards, then fantastic, we'll work with credit cards. If something else becomes popular, then you know we'll definitely look at supporting that too. But uh, we, we, we definitely didn't want a name that was sort of excessively tied to sort of one particular implementation of payments. And,
0: and so when you, when you got the Stripe and you went with this whole branding, I guess you, you sort of branded yourself at that point, right? That's when you got serious. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did that whole process of coming up with the design and logo and everything go for you guys?
2: Uh, no fantastic answer there. We went through sort of lots of different iterations and you know played with different ideas and logos and worked with some design firms and uh, a couple of other things. Uh, and then actually, uh, Ludwig uh, Peterson, our first designer, joined Stripe back in I want to say June of last year. Uh, and mostly it, it's been kind of his work and his design direction that has sort of determined what sort of the Stripe brand looks like today and we're pretty happy with it and that we really like kind of this, uh, this these sort of motifs of blueprints and like construction and making and building things, whatever else. And that kind of, I think, is sort of a pretty accurate representation of, of what we are. Having said that, I don't think we're, we're not finished yet. We still sort of think about it quite a bit. And we, I mean, we're still sort of making tweaks and changes to the Stripe identity and branding. Um, also, I think, I guess we're, <laughs> We're we're hackers more than we are designers, and so this is this is a little bit kind of um, foreign territory for us, and we're still kind of getting our head around it. And so uh, I'm pretty kind of happy with where we are now. Uh, It's much much better than where we were like a year ago as slash Dev slash Payments. Uh, But I suspect (laughs) that sort of uh, will will sort of yeah. Well,
0: yeah, the the design process. I I find it always so to be. I'm sorry, I didn't didn't mean to talk about. No, no, go ahead. I I just. I've always found the design process so frustrating. So it sounds like you went through a little bit of that frustration as well. You said multi, you worked with multiple design firms? I mean, was that well, like... A- yeah,
2: I probably shouldn't exaggerate, exaggerate too much. We worked, I think, with one design firm, maybe one or two contractors, and then we we eventually hired Ludwig. And so there, there wasn't sort of a ton of turmoil there, but we definitely went through sort of a number of different concepts and ideas and whatever else, and uh, or b- before we really settled on what you see today.
1: I was, I was going to say, I mean, the, the front-end is fantastic the framework it sorry the just the way it's very responsive um and it's just really good do you use any javascript framework or yes
2: so i I guess i was i actually um kind of got sidetracked or forgot to finish off on the framework point like i said we started out building everything with ruby and sinatra but uh we we then decided to uh we we made the decision back in maybe august or so that we should build a new version of the management interface and that was just sort of a uh, I, don't know, I, I guess we, we got sort of enough new ideas and uh, enough information about how people were using the product, and like now, sort of the the difference between what we knew manage or the management interface should look like and kind of how it actually worked and, and existed at the time was sufficiently different that a complete reimplementation looked like a good idea. And so, with that reimplementation, uh, we decided to build it all in. Backbone and uh, SAS for CSS uh, and ECO for templating, uh, also CoffeeScript, and build it all sort of on top of the API. uh, So that really this is just of another consumer of the Stripe API, rather than sort of having almost all of the rendering logic running on the server. And that launched in, uh, I believe, mid-November. And so now we use the Stripe Management interface, yeah. Almost all of the application code is just CoffeeScript that's being executed in your browser, and that's pulling data from the Stripe API.
0: Yeah, it's really quick. It's really elegant um, how it works. Um, huh. So, well, I was real quick. Real quick. It's twelve twenty now. Um, do you need mm-hmm. to jump oh. right in this minute, or do you want to go for a few more minutes? Or
2: uh, I can go for like five minutes if you want.
0: Okay. Okay. Sure. Um, then I'll, uh, I'm going to start into this uh, question um, real quick. So one thing that you do is you have a, a seven day hold on payment. Right. So when it, when a credit card transaction goes through um, there's seven days from that, at which point it is available to withdraw, or transfer to your bank account. Um, okay. So why is it seven days? I mean, as opposed to one or two.
2: Got it. So really this is a, uh, to enable us to provide sort of the really seamless and fast uh, setup experience that we do, uh, in that because it's seven days, that really gives us seven days to get sort of a good, accurate picture as to the profile of a business. And because because Stripe provides I mean, basically the easiest setup process of any payment system on the internet, that creates a sort of this really attractive fraud target and uh we we feel sort of sufficiently good uh and confident sort of in our fraud systems that we can detect basically all of that but it's hard to sort of do that overnight and so with the 7 day hold we we have sort of a week long period to to really uh, kind of get a good idea as to the the profile of a business and its usage and its customers and everything else
1: is there any reason why you don't um make it shorter then once you've you know verified someone
2: yeah so we're, we're thinking about that. Uh, the other side of it is that just from an operational standpoint, uh, different payment instruments and different types of credit card and American Express versus international cards and sort of all these things, they all actually have slightly different settlement periods, such that Stripe itself doesn't actually get the money, uh, in some cases for maybe even three or four days. And so by doing seven-day payouts, we, we, we can sort of aggregate everything into one sort of, you know, full really nice abstracted payment and tell you that okay you know in this particular transfer the future bank account exactly seven days later we have paid you out for all of these charges that that you know you made seven days previously. And, and, you know, we could shorten it a little bit, but as you start getting back to kind of four, three, two, one days, now you get into complex situations of, well, we haven't necessarily got the money ourselves. What should we do there? Should we pay you in advance for it? Should we do kind of incomplete transfers and then transfer later as, you know, as we start to get the money or just kind of the abstraction breaks down a little bit. And so by doing seven days, there is this kind of really nice property that that we can uh, we can really simplify things. And And so, yeah, like I we pretty frequently talk about different ways in which we might reduce that time and where we can reduce it, but it's, uh, I guess there are those two considerations sort of the operational flow of the money and then just making sure that we can sort of deal with things from a, a fraud and risk perspective. So
0: so would you say seven days, um, does that, if, if a transaction is on a Saturday afternoon, is it seven days to the minute for that transaction or is it seven days from the following, you know, uh, one minute after midnight on a business day? I mean, when? I see. When yeah. It so,
2: so it's kind of bank dependent, but basically we initiate the transfer to you seven days after the uh, after the payment has occurred. And kind of after that, it, it's largely sort of bank dependent. Usually that means you'll get the money the very next day, but for some banks, and in particular banks that sort of aren't as tightly integrated into the US ACH infrastructure, that can be a little bit longer. Also, things like uh, business holidays and weekends that are can sometimes kind of slow that down a little bit like maybe if sort of your bank is a little bit slower we initiate the transaction on thursday it doesn't show up on friday and it said shows up on monday but but by and large it, it 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 tends to be the case that you will get the money sort of the, the day after or the morning after sort of that seven day period that thing right. that
1: you were just saying about instant approval i have to say that is an absolutely unbelievable customer experience because there was a point in the sign-up process when i you know obviously started and started using the test API. But then I entered my company details and I thought it said it, I was going to get instant approval, but I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, no, that's not possible. How, you know, that's not going to happen. I clicked the button and it said, you're approved. I was like, how did they do that? So it's great to know that's how you did it. I was a was question yeah, I wanted to this, ask you. This
2: has really taken like a ton of work and there's pretty good reason that sort of nobody has done this before, but it's also sort of the one part of the product that we're, we're most unwilling to compromise on. Like we always wanted a payment system that we could just go live with immediately and not have to fax documents and not have to wait for approval or like call somebody the next day or have them call us or whatever it is. Like we, we just were not willing to compromise on the experience of going to Stripe deciding, okay, Stripe looks good. I will sign up and then can launch like right there. And then, Uh, Yeah, that was, that uh, was
0: amazing. I, I was the one who set up our Stripe account, uh uh, I guess Justin used that for Plugio. And you yeah. also said set up accounts with like SendGrid. I mean, yep. SendGrid, sending email was way more painful. All this kind of verification <laughs> and waiting. Yeah, yeah, And then another one we use is Webmaster Checks, which is what we use to, um, our, our company, AnyFoo, is going to use to send the money. Once once a payment is made from Stripe, the money is transferred to our bank account, then it is paid out through ACH or Checks or whatever.
1: Sure. Do you he might not know what AnyFoo is. Yeah. <laughs> um well
2: uh, it, it, yeah i it
0: really had to go into you now, but essentially um but to get to the webmaster checks account set up i mean it was like a week and a half two weeks uh-huh, of uh-huh. phone calls and faxing documents and and verification it was just really painful yeah. um and you had to be pretty determined <laughs> to get that account
2: set up right <laughs> right yeah, right. yeah that, that that's totally sort of part of what we wanted to eliminate um And, and yeah, we're, we're sort of, we're happy with how it's worked out. And we're actually very appreciative sort of with the various backend partners and companies that we deal with that's the sort of, they've taken a leap with us to make this happen. And that like, this is kind of new territory for, for the banks we work with too, in that they're definitely not used to this world of, of instant approval for sort of random people on the internet. And I mean, we've built lots of systems and actually the, the person who previous, or who used to head payments fraud at Facebook just, joined Stripe to help us on this. And so we've we put a lot of thought into kind of how this backend infrastructure should work to make it happen. But uh, it's, yeah, like I say, it's <laughs> it's taken work from all sides.
0: Okay, so one thing I wanted to ask you about was how your service scales for clients. So for smaller mm-hmm. clients who need to get something set up fast and don't want to spend weeks or months getting a merchant account set up, Stripe seems like the yep. op choice. But what I'm interested about is as as the revenue of the startup of your client scales and gets to $10,000 a month, $50,000 a month, something like that, um, mm-hmm. your pricing of 2.9% a month, I wonder, is that something that you're going to hold constant forever? Or are you going to think about scaling that as companies get larger? Or what are your thoughts about that?
2: So that, that's a very good question. Um, and that, that's a, this is a, an important topic, I guess. And the first thing to say, I guess, is that... I mean, I think people think that sort of Stripe's biggest advantage is sort of in that instant setup and sort of that it's really easy to get started with a small thing. And obviously that is sort of a big advantage and something we care a lot about. And I guess we've kind of talked about that a little bit already. But um, I think actually Stripe is like Stripe's advantages show through even more strongly when you're a large user uh and i think this is actually kind of hard to appreciate and and it's sort of really surprising for sort of technology people or developers to realize but when you deal with a traditional merchant account and gateway provider and whatever else it's it's just such an antiquated and and sort of legacy architecture, uh, you get these like paper statements in the mail every month. There is like this really crappy online interface where you can barely do anything. When you need to calculate how much you're paying in fees every month, that's all based on paper statements that intentionally obfuscate things as much as possible. If you have any chargebacks, you're probably dealing with sort of a paper-based process there. And just like the whole thing, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's almost not even like a technology product uh, whereas with Stripe, we, we've I mean, sort of because we control the complete stack, like right from talking sort of across the credit card networks to transferring the money into your bank account every day, uh, we can sort of provide this really unified experience. And so every time there's a transfer, say into your bank account, we we tell you I mean, programmatically uh, like exactly which charges this is for, and like you can answer the question, "Have I got the money for this charge yet?" or "When will I get the money for this charge?" We tell you via the API. Uh, what the fee was for any particular charge, you can sort of immediately query the state of the charge and like has it been paid to you or whatever. Uh, if there are any chargebacks, that that's all handled electronically, and, and you like never get something in the mail. And for a lot of big companies, uh, obviously these operational issues matter a ton, in that they might have a lot of chargebacks just because I mean they have so many users or customers, or uh, I mean they might have built their own accounting system and they might want to integrate that. Like in those internal systems um, with uh, with Stripe, and I mean, for for a lot of the traditional setups, one of the really big pain points is that it's so hard and almost intentionally hard to reconcile what's happening at sort of the payment processor level with what's happening sort of from their uh, internal uh, stand or their internal perspective. So we we've had a lot of conversations with kind of larger companies about this and actually a pretty significant number of large companies have either switched to Stripe or in the process of doing that in large part, because the kind of ongoing operational management stuff is just way better.
1: Um, If for example, you're turning over a hundred thousand and you're faced with the choice between a 1.5% charge and a 2.9% charge. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty substantial amount of money. So how would you kind of talk to critics of that?
2: So, so this is, I guess the, the other thing I was was going to get onto and, but one of the problems with the industry is that uh, everybody, again, intentionally obfuscates their pricing, and there, there is no there is no company in the world um, that actually pays one point five percent for credit card processing. They they may well sort of work with somebody who quotes them 1.5% but it's always more than that and uh, and I mean what, what always happens is that you know it's 1.5% for some particular class of transactions and then there's also you know the 0.1% authorization fee and the you know PCI fee and the monthly fee and the vault fee and the international card surcharge and the corporate card surcharge and the non-qualified surcharge and just it it adds up constantly and so in the early days, we were, I mean, well, to get the backtrack, this kind of presents a little bit of a problem for Stripe, because that means that either we have a kind of a similarly obfuscated pricing structure, or we sound more expensive than other providers. And kind of in the early days, we were a little bit naive about this. And somebody would kind of email in and say, oh, you know, we're thinking of switching to Stripe, and uh, 2.9 sounds kind of high, you know, can you talk to us a little bit here. And we'd reply saying, Okay, how much are you paying? And they'd say something like, Oh, we're paying 1%. <laughs> and and I mean, we sort of knew like they, they could not be paying 1%. And that that like just the 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 charges imposed by the credit cards themselves, even before you count how much the processor is taking, are are more than one percent. Um and so what we started to do sort of is ask people, okay, would you mind just sending us a couple of months of statements and we'll we'll analyze them for you and we'll figure out how much you're paying and we'll tell you. And we did this for a couple of people and we realized that they're always like in every case paying way more than they thought they were paying. Um, and, and frequently like vastly more. Uh, we had one particular fairly large company switched to Stripe and like they thought they were paying something like one or 1.5% or something. And it turned out they were paying like 4.5%. Uh, and the ways that this happens is, uh, like it, th- there's a couple of them. The, the, on the one hand, there's just the fact that you're usually paying more than kind of the fees for the transaction itself, like you have monthly fees and setup fees and PCI fees and gateway fees and card storage fees and fault fees and whatever else. But also just had like on the per transaction basis, uh, it, it, I mean, there'll be kind of a base rate set of, you know, whatever it is, 1.9%. And then things levied on top of that, like, oh, okay, if it's an American Express charge, it's, you know, 0.5% extra, or if it's an international card, it's 1% extra, or, you know, so on and so forth. Um and, and so what we really wanted to do with Stripe is make sure that we never sort of make money unless you yourselves are, or unless you yourself, uh, are, are making money. Um, and actually a good kind of example of that is with, with every other provider, if you try to charge a card and that charge fails, they'll charge you for the attempt. Whereas with Stripe, we only charge you, uh, for, for successful charges. Um, and so, I guess what all of this breaks down to is we sort of ran all the numbers and figured out sort of what our costs were, and you know what the breakdown of the different types of card are, and everything else. And we figured out that two point nine percent plus thirty cent only levied on successful charges is actually a really competitive rate. Uh, and there there are a lot of big businesses that are that have sort of realised that and are kind of very happily paying it. But you're right; it, it sort of imposes um, a, a challenge for us to sort of explain to people that I mean, it, it's kind of it's hard to ex- to tell people that. <laughs> You know this thing that you believe is the case is 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 wrong, and you know you you might think you're getting this fantastic deal, but but you're actually not, and you've sort of made a mistake in your calculations, and and that's sort of a, a hard pitch. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, I mean, we obviously don't want to move to sort of a standard obfuscatory pricing model, so it's definitely something we're we're working on, and trying to get better at. But that that's sort of how we look at it overall.
1: Uh, thanks a lot for answering that. That's a good good answer, and um, I guess. It- it is it is a really difficult marketing message to get across. I'm not sure how you could ever do it. Maybe you could have some kind of viral campaign that where you went in and became a fly on the wall in other people's businesses and looked at how much they were really being charged. And
2: Yeah, yeah. I think something like that might work. Or maybe if we did just like a showcase of a couple of people and maybe we anonymize them a little bit and, and kind of just walk through or even kind of give scans of like typical statements and show kind of what the what it looks like they're paying. And then if you totally run the numbers, what they're actually paying or something like that.
0: Yeah I, I think if you did like a uh, one of those OK Cupid style of blog yeah, posts right, or maybe a right, series like right. a three-parter like uh-huh. why we're really the your best uh your most economical choice and yes. three case studies of how you know you could use some case studies and go into the numbers and graphs and numbers and that would probably get a lot of traction you could you could yeah. you know call out PayPal call out you know you know okay right. we took these three banks with these bank with these you know gateway providers and BrainTree or Samurai and, and did it because you know when Justin and I Started talking about this issue for our startup, Minifoo, um, and we talked about it online, or I should say, on the podcast a number mm-hmm. of times. And we're, you know, was, we were we were really wrestling with it, trying to sort out, like, well, is it PayPal or should we do BrainTree or this or yep. that? And then yep. Justin, and and Justin was sort of tasked with with picking one of them. I said, you right. You you know, just do the research and figure figure out what we should do." And yeah. he came back and he says, "Well, look, Stripe is just awesome." You know, their interface, their their API is awesome. He's like, I think at the very least we should start with them. But then we we started talking a little more about it. And it sounded like it was going to be more expensive when we got larger. And I thought, well, what we'll do is we'll go for Stripe for the first six months, year, two years, whatever it is. And if we outgrow them, we grow grow them. And maybe that's just their business model. But it sounds like you're right. Like, you just need to make that.
1: Well, I'll I'll tell you something else. Um, Like, as we were discussing that on the show, we've had a lot of feedback from listeners who have the same perception as us about this 2.9% they're like oh but you shouldn't really go with stripe because you'll you'll lose you know a lot of money's on the table that way so i do think it's a marketing perception that you 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 need to um address in the marketplace
2: that's very helpful um well i guess as of yesterday we now have a blog so i guess we can uh, <laughs> we can actually start writing about these things yeah, well, awesome. speaking
0: speaking of your blog um and that that's a good segue um you you originally just or I guess your first post maybe it was your first post was about webhooks.
2: That's right. Those are our first posts. Current, yeah. Currently, our first and only posts. There'll be a, yeah. A so that, that. I found that
0: really interesting because that's something that we our let's just say, webhook feature is really important to us mm-hmm. um, for the following reason. So any foo. Just to, in really simple terms, it's kind of like the Airbnb. It's going to be like the Airbnb of micro-consulting. So you sign up, you okay. list yourself as an expert in uh, Lisp or Node.js or SQL Server or whatever, uh-huh. and you can say I'm two hundred bucks an hour, and someone can come along and say, Hey, I'd like to schedule a two-hour session with you to help troubleshoot this problem or or whatever, yep. right? Yep. So it, it's got that kind of um, uh, marketplace problem. So people pay, sure. we take our surcharge, and then yep. we funnel the the full. Uh, the full build amount to the, uh, to the expert. So the, the issue was for us is like, okay, so seven days, once every seven days, we get money swept into our account from Stripe. Yes. But we want to get that money automatically and as fast as possible to the experts. We don't want to be like, have to check in manually every day and say, okay, so these 15 people have been paid. Let's just, you know, send it through. So we wanted to know like, when has that money been transferred to our, our account without having to check, log into Wells Fargo? And Uh now it's there. And I was wondering, you know, with your web hooks, is there going to be something like money transferred to your account?
2: Oh, interesting. Um, So we hadn't really thought about that, but that's a really good idea. We should probably do that. Uh, I really like that idea. See, another benefit of doing the show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That would would be great for us. Yeah, because otherwise there's not the only other way we could do it is hook, hook an API into our actual merchant account and say, "Is, is, is there enough money in our account to cover this, this outgoing payment?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I,
0: think uh, I was on camp. I was on campfire or something when we support people, and he said, "You know, like maybe you could pull your transfers."
2: Yeah, yeah. Or something. So, so, so we. I mean, we have a transfers API, but uh, you're right. We should totally integrate that with uh, with the webhook stuff. Right. Well, great. I guess that question's answered. Yeah, that's the that's the technical
1: I, support section of the show. Thank you very much <laughs> for that.
2: I, I'm making a note of this right now.
0: <laughs> um. Well, speaking of things to do, um, two of your major investors, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, were PayPal founders. So okay. that's really interesting that they are now on your board, probably so giving so so advice so and guidance. So,
2: so, so they're not actually on the board, they're, they're okay. just investors.
0: Okay. But still, I mean, they're paying, they're putting money, their money is investing in a fight against their previous <laughs> creation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Google's also a funder, right?
2: No, actually. Um, so, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Andreessen Horowitz, and the Sequoia Capital uh, are the main ones. And I guess, actually, also Y Combinator and SV okay. Angel. But, but yeah, no, no no, Google.
0: Okay, so what about Peter and, um, no, and Elon arms? Musk? I mean, what kind of... How helpful has that been? Have they had given you much input, or are they just sort of silent investors?
2: But they're, they, they've been very helpful, actually. Um, they... I guess, unsurprisingly, have a very sort of lucid and insightful view of the payments industry and landscape, and kind of pretty sh- sharp opinions on what PayPal did right and wrong. And they've been kind of pretty willing to share those. And I think it's actually sort of uh, it's a lot of kind of it, it speaks very well to their characters. I think that they were willing to invest in Stripe in that. Uh, I mean, PayPal was founded sort of partially, I mean, as a company and as a thing to make money and whatever, but also it sort of, it had a mission and it had a mission to kind of enable transactions on the web and to sort of uh, facilitate all this stuff that just wasn't happening before. And even to do things like, uh, provide people in say countries that a stable currency with a route to to uh, getting some kind of stability and and kind of having the ability to say hold US dollars or other currencies or whatever and just like there were there were all these kind of broader goals they wanted to achieve sort of in addition to just you know building a successful company kind of for their own ends and i think sort of the fact that they're willing to invest in stripe and invest sort of in this thing that yes is somewhat in many ways, competitive with the thing that they started, with their baby uh, shows that you know that they were they were genuine about this. Like they they really did want these other things to happen, and they wanted these other things to happen enough that they're they're willing to invest in a in a competitor. Uh, and so I I think it's kind of pretty impressive, actually.
0: Yeah, because you know last week we interviewed the guys from Kaggle, and um, one of their investors or uh, is oh uh, god, what, Justin, you remember his name? He's one of the PayPal co-founders
1: as well. I do not. So right.
2: the, the, the third founder is Max Levchin, so maybe him? Yeah, that's
1: right. It sucks when our guests have more facts in their brain than we do. <laughs> I
0: I wouldn't uh, be surprised. So let me, uh, Justin, can, luckily has can cut this out, oh, so my bumbling and fumbling, but uh, let me see if I can... Max Levchin, you're right, chairman of Kaggle. Yeah, so so Max Max is on their board, and... And they said that Jeremy and uh, Anthony told us that he was like this seer that could see it to the future and could tell them exactly what going <laughs> to them, you know, three months down the road or six months. Was, and then and sure enough, that was what happened. Do you, you yeah. feel you get that kind of guidance? Like there's like this, you know, long distance telescope on the front of your, uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, you know. there's, there's definitely some amount of that. Um, I think, I, I'm trying to think how I'd describe it, um... I guess they they just have a very sort of uh they, they have two things one they have a very sort of high level perspective uh in terms of the various arcs that are possible and what the end game is likely to be and what the consequences of doing such and such are likely to be over the long term and and sort of that really uh, the, that kind of strong sense for the the distant time horizon but uh, I mean, there, I think there are many people who can sort of strategize and wave their hands like this and, you know, say things and whatever else. And of course, they're way more likely to be true because they've thought about it more and you know, they've, they've been successful at it. But, but, but still, that, that's just one part of it. The other part, I think, is that they have a really kind of acute and, and deep appreciation for, <laughs> for how difficult it is to actually get there and just how many moving parts there are and just how many things are likely to sort of go wrong or cause you hassle or cause friction along the way. I mean, they fought this battle for many years themselves. And so it's actually really helpful to sort of to be able to have conversations with these people who, uh, and kind of specifically Peter Neil, who can on the one hand talk about what sort of the shiny future will look like in 15 years when we've you know beaten all of these uh, roadblocks and overcome whatever hurdles, but also on kind of a way more prosaic basis can just sympathize and empathize with kind of on the on the three week basis how all of these things are likely to be causing major problems. And, you know, how do we possibly convince such and such a bank to do such and such and, and just kind of the, the day-to-day considerations? And I think there aren't actually that many people who can sort of straddle both sides of that. And they're they are both really good at that.
1: Do you think that PayPal in its own right has paved some of the way so that, for example, some of your discussions may be easier yes. now that PayPal exists?
2: I think that's definitely true. I mean, when PayPal started... Basically, banks weren't even convinced that you should be able to use credit cards online. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. Uh, and so definitely, it's much, much easier for us, given, uh, given PayPal's existence.
0: Well, speaking of the ugliness of the problem you have, you're tackling, um, you know, Paul Graham wrote an essay not too long ago, um, citing Stripe as a case example of why you want to go after these really hard problems that are so hard, but, but so in front of your face that you don't even notice them. And, I don't know, I mean, I I thought that was a really interesting um, perspective he had. Uh Um, What what are your thoughts on that?
2: So, I largely agree uh, in that I think that, I mean, it is just uh, more interesting in many ways, I think, to tackle sort of a a hard problem. Um, I guess I've, there's probably a a couple things I'd say in it. One is that, in a general sense, I think people kind of... uh, Underestimate how easy a hard problem can be. And really, by that I mean that, like, sure, on the one hand, solving something hard is kind of mechanically more difficult, or like, yes, you will have more roadblocks to overcome or friction along the way or whatever. But the thing that I think people don't really take into account um, enough is that when you're tackling a really hard and a really meaningful problem it's also just way easier to sort of inspire people to work with you and to help you and to sort of contribute to this larger mission um and and, and i mean it's it's easier to inspire yourself uh and so in mean, solving an easy problem is is like the the actual kind of minute by minute by, excuse me minute by minute work might be much easier but but it's actually i think harder to to in, in many cases at least to have that sort of resonate with others and and to like really have it be a thing that you want to work on for like five or ten years Uh, I think kind of an obvious example of this is something like SpaceX where I mean how do you build a private rocket company I mean there are just so many hurdles you can barely even begin to to start and yet I, I think in some ways SpaceX is kind of I mean it's Part of the reason it succeeded is because so many fantastic people sort of rallied around it. And like, it's, it's such a kind of an easy cause to inspire people to participate in like, look, we're going to reduce the single point of failure of humanity where we're currently reliant on, on this like single planet. Uh, And that's just such a, I mean, a compelling vision. Uh, And so I think that people kind of in thinking about problems should probably take that into account a little bit more. Well, for any of our
0: listeners who don't know, Elon Musk, who's your as we mentioned, is one of your investors, is the founder and CEO of SpaceX. Right, um, and you're right. I agree with you. So, yeah, not just building a to-do list has its advantages.
1: You know, you not yeah. only
0: you, you inspire yourself or the people, but you get people who are inspiring themselves. But
1: you need to be a, to a certain kind them. of person to take on that level of responsibility and to kind of motivate that many people. So I think that it's it's you know it's one discussion is should you go easy or difficult but another discussion is what kind of person are you
2: that's true that's true although i do think that i mean i don't i mean obviously stripe is not spacex and i don't mean to sort of create that association but i also don't think i mean to to the extent that stripe is a hard problem i mean i don't think that i am any kind of or myself and john are, are sort of special kinds of people with some magic ability to kind of inspire others or lead or solve hard problems i think that i mean again to whatever extent we're we're capable of doing it now we we've learned it along the way and got lots of advice and grown and like made mistakes and learned and i think that sort of in the beginning we we were in the beginning we weren't capable of doing it and we just sort of had sufficient kind of help and room to make mistakes and advice and everything else along the way that we've we've at least got to sort of as far as we have and so i don't like you know if I guess if I were to advise somebody who's sort of trying to choose between them and they felt that they weren't capable of uh, of tackling the hard problem, I guess I would really, I, I would have them pause there. And I, I I, think there's actually a way, I think you totally grow into the kind of person who's capable of solving the hard problem. Uh, obviously, you need to want to do it, but I, I really don't think that it's some kind of intrinsic nature or something like that. I think it's something you acquire along the way. Interesting.
0: Yeah, you, know, you know, speaking of going after a hard problem, I mean, you're competing directly against Google, among other...
2: Yeah, yeah, there's Google payments, there's PayPal, there's Amazon payments, there may someday, excuse me, someday be a Facebook Payments. There's a, There's definitely lots of companies in this space.
0: But that doesn't seem to be a problem. I mean, it seems to be like you're going after a hard enough problem and a big enough problem that it's probably not going to be winner-take-all. That You don't have to worry about Google just swooping in, and everyone just goes, okay, so I guess Google's the answer, everybody else might as well just quit. Yeah, Um, what's your perspective on that?
2: So so I think that's true. I I also think it's the case that uh, it's kind of it's a problem that looks easy. Like many things, from the like from from a product perspective, payments looks kind of easy from the outside. You're like, oh, I just like build a thing that enables people to accept payments, and I put money in their bank account, and I enable consumers to pay. And I mean, what more is there to it? And I mean, sure, there are legal challenges and regulatory challenges and operational challenges, but like from a product perspective, it's very simple. And I think that that's kind of a very seductive mistake. And I think that kind of Amazon and Google and many other companies have sort of believed that and they've launched these payments products and they just haven't had very much success at all. And and I think that's because sort of, I mean, they, they just don't, it's it's not in their fiber and it's not in their DNA uh, enough to sort of to really wrap their head around the details and the subtleties of it. And so in the same way that it's ridiculous for for IBM to decide, like, oh, hey, we're going to do web search. I mean, what's web search? You just like type in some keywords and press enter, and you get a list of matching pages. Like, what could be simpler? Whereas, in fact, when you really invest yourself in the problem, you you realize that there is a ton of subtlety to it, and and that like these tiny details really matter a lot. And so, I think that none of these other companies are really thinking about it uh, with, I guess, as much. I don't know, uh, kind of single minded. Focus as we are, and I think that like really small things at a product make a, a very big difference. And I think that we sort of spend all our day trying to figure out how we can make it easier for people to integrate. Like, how should the webhooks work? Okay, we should just rewrite the webhooks to make them work a little bit better. And just like all these, all these kind of individually fairly small details, but these things that also I think cumulatively add up to a very meaningfully different product experience. I don't think these other either excuse me these other companies are doing that and. I think that's a big problem. And I think that sort of they will never do that for as long as their payment systems are treated as this random side project as opposed to a core part of what they do. And so in that sense, I mean, obviously, you know, we never write them off. I mean, at the end of the day, they are Amazon and PayPal and Google and everything else. And clearly, they're pretty good at this whole Internet thing. But uh, I do think that because because it's not a core focus for any of them, they're they're actually in a much more uh, it's much harder for them.
0: Yeah, the. um Speaking of your company and how small you are, I'd like to get a little more understanding of where you guys are at in terms of size. I, I brought it mm-hmm. up a little bit earlier, and we didn't get too into it, but so how how many employees do you have? How many uh, users do you have, if you want to talk about it? I, I don't know.
2: So so we don't really talk about user numbers, but I can say okay. we're, we're 17 people, including myself and John.
0: Okay. Yep. And uh, now you're the CEO, right? And your brother, John, is the CTO? Is that the
2: breakdown? Uh, so. Uh, I'm the CEO and John's actually the president.
0: Oh, president. Okay. Um, and he's your younger brother, right? Correct. Right. So you get to boss him around forever as it is, I <laughs> guess.
2: <laughs> no, we, we, we've carefully divided the titles so that I'm president, he's CEO. It's very sort of, uh, uh, equitable.
0: Oh, come on. You can't go and say, John, listen, you know, I just want you to know, ultimately I'm the boss of you
2: uh i I mean in in a very deep way that's not the case uh that that seems like that'd be
0: the ultimate thing to say to your little brother
2: (laughs) titles are just titles really what it boils down to is is ownership and myself and john own exactly the same amount of stripe
0: yeah it makes me want to call my little brother up just tell him i'm still the boss of him but uh
2: (laughs) so um stripe Stripe wouldn't work if we had anything like that kind of dynamic Uh, yeah no i i figure you guys
0: sound like a very like a Like most of these startups, it's really about just getting things done, pretty flat. Everybody, you know, rolls up their sleeves and works together.
2: Like there's, you know, I've lots of friends in technology, and I mean, there's lots of people um, with whom either I or John could have co-founded Stripe, Uh, and we didn't sort of start with each other because you know we had to or anything. We started because I mean, I thought he was the best co-founder. He's he's a phenomenally good guy. I mean, he like the man got the highest uh, ever university entrance exam results in ireland like the highest ever uh, he's wow a, he's a sharp kid
1: <laughs> hey i have, a, I have a, a side question for this what what is the kind of culture like in the office what, what how does that play out
2: we're pretty we work very hard um uh everyone i think really values just hard work and being productive um we we're all pretty good personal friends in addition to work colleagues and we value that a lot uh, we place a ton of importance on people's personality and that people are fun to work with and nice. And one of the criteria we use in hiring is we, we always ask this question of if this person were in the office by themselves on Sunday, would you come into the office just to get more time to hang out with them? Like, you know, <laughs> maybe you don't see enough of them during the week or whatever. Would you come in on Sunday just to hang out with them? Um and if the answer is no then and if the answer is no from anyone then we're i know that that's a major red flag for us and so we really try hard to find people who uh, who others want to spend time with. That's um, a
0: really good uh, that's a really good criteria I like. That. I've never heard anyone state it that way but that's a good way.
1: It's going to be interesting how you navigate, you know, moving into the hundreds of employees. So obviously the time you're in now is they they call that the kind of golden time don't they in startups where it's still small enough that you totally know everyone on first name basis.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think scaling these things are difficult. Um, On the other hand, I I find it kind of heartening that sort of each successive generation of companies in Silicon Valley seems to do a slightly better job of it. That if you look at, I don't know, Intel compared to Apple, compared to uh, Netscape, compared to Yahoo, compared to Google, compared to Facebook, compared to Dropbox, they all actually have fairly meaningfully Different cultures, uh, and and I think in many ways have sort of learned from from the past generation. I think that's actually yeah very heartening because it's not that sort of you are condemned to follow the exact same trajectory as everybody else. You can actually have hope that you know okay we're actually going to do it somewhat better than everybody else. And if we if we are sufficiently thoughtful about learning from learning the lessons from others, we can we can maybe sort of sustain this really good culture to hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and so I. I mean, it's 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 definitely hard, and you know, definitely don't have all the answers. But I I think that there's there's a lot of potential to do it really well.
0: Yeah. Speaking of of the company and growing, I mean, you're a you're the CEO, but you're also a coder. I mean, how what does your day look like? How much time do you get to spend writing code, and how much time is spent doing sort of CEO kind mm-hmm. of things?
2: Yeah. So it, it varies on a day by day basis. Um, today, I guess it's what. Uh, it's about two o'clock, and I haven't coded yet today. Uh, mm. On the other hand, yesterday I spent a bunch of hours coding and just like you know fixing some random part of one of our systems. Uh, it's definitely diminished over time, um, but I think that that's that's okay, and that's you know that that's sort of how it should be. Um, you know, in the, in the early days, I mean, in the very beginning, John and I built all of the product together. And now we sort of increasingly try to figure out ways where we can kind of help others be more productive in in contributing to the product. Um, I will say that I still absolutely love coding, and some of my happiest moments are just, I don't know, playing some, uh, like, two-hour trance set and getting really deeply engrossed in some problem. Um, And and I I hope I don't ever sort of lose the ability to do that, at least occasionally. Um, But by and large, I think that, I mean, really... We want Stripe to ha- like I-, I want Stripe to happen more than I want to uh, uh, more than I want to program every day. And so, if you know, if making Stripe happen and be successful, all of these things requires that I spend all my day, you know, talking to banks or uh, I don't know, figuring out how to. S- scale the company or flying abroad to meet with international partners or like who, who knows what like I've, I've no idea but if it, no matter sort of what it requires i'm actually pretty willing to do that because i really i really want stripe to happen
1: <laughs> actually just just since you've mentioned the international aspect uh, that is a good segue very quickly to ask well I, I know that a lot of people on hacker news have asked you know whenever stripe comes up there's quite a few people who say when's it going to be available internationally when's it going to be available internationally what what are your thoughts and projections about that
2: Um, so unfortunately we don't have any timelines around this, but, uh, and we're sort of, we're being pretty careful about not giving timelines just because it's so hard to estimate and there are so many moving parts, but we are exactly
0: Justin. you see, (laughs) just as always getting on my case about giving him a timeline for something. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: well, I mean, we can give timelines on sort of certain things, but international just, yeah, yeah. We, what are the
1: challenges? What are the challenges that you're finding?
2: well, so, so we're we're working on it right now. We're we're working on making Stripe available to people who who are not uh, based in the US, um, or making sort of accepting payments with Stripe available to those people. The challenges are a couple of things. One, uh, there's obviously the product and just making that work sort of with different banks in different countries and uh, different languages and different currencies and you know, different infrastructures and whatever else. And there's the, a the decent amount of work there. Um, then there's also different regulatory environments and different sets of, I mean, legal systems and different frameworks and whatever else. Uh, there are different banks and different partners, uh, and so kind of the financial partners we work with in the US. We have to work with different companies uh, in, in other jurisdictions. Um, And then there's, I mean, I guess there's both sort of different legal frameworks and also just kind of general ongoing compliance and accounting and and ancillary stuff. And so an example is in the EU, there's kind of fairly complex safe harbor regulations. And so it's a lot of that. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated and very, very, very few companies have uh, you know, have done it before. And in many cases, we find ourselves sort of being either the first or among the first. Uh, and I think that's sort of a large part of kind of the promise and value of Stripe is that it's it's kind of ubiquitous and universal. And so we really care a lot about making this happen. And I mean, almost half of the people in the office aren't even from the U.S. originally. And so it, it's something we're kind of really excited to see. But it's it's hard. And there's, there's a good reason that sort of there aren't really any uh ubiquitous or universal payment processors to speak of. Um, and I think it is exactly because uh, providing the universal abstraction layer just is a ton of work. Uh, and so, you know, we're working on it, as I say, right now, we're taking it really seriously. It's one of the most important things for the company, but, you know, we'll have to just see how it goes.
0: So the next thing I'd like to talk to you about is the uh, is the marketing. And uh-huh. it sounds to me like you guys haven't really done much in that sense. I mean, Considering that you are just getting up a blog now, has the growth been purely uh, word of mouth and, and pretty much, and just, yeah, pretty much. What's
2: your what's your growth?
0: Do you set numbers like your month to month growth rate, or is that still also?
2: Yeah, we, we haven't really talked about that either. Um, we, we we may start talking about that, but I mean, I, I guess we just want the focus to be on the product. Uh, we're okay. we're really happy with our monthly growth rates. Like I can say, they're they're really good. Um, okay, but. Uh, yeah, we, we feel like that's, the focus should be on our product and on our, on our users. Uh, and that's sort of what we'd like to maintain. And sort of, it's our job to worry about the growth and make sure that's adequate and everything else. But,
0: right. Because, uh, you yeah. know, I, um, as I mentioned before the show, I do some consulting work for Uber. And Uber, mm-hmm. they, they don't do any marketing at all. Yeah. They yeah. write a blog post occasionally, yes. uh, which may or may not do well on Hacker News or whatever. And mm-hmm. But they have, I can't remember what it was, 20%... We did a 20% growth rate a month or something, I got 30. And, and it was just like one of those things where because the product works and people love yes. it, it yep. spreads. And I was just on a flight when I was flying back from San Francisco a few weeks ago, and I was on the plane. Oh, the guy sitting next to me turned to be this investment banker, and I, we were on along to talk, and I happened to say something mm-hmm. about Uber. He's like, Uber? He's like, that's like my favorite thing in the whole world. I used it 10 times this weekend. <laughs> He's like, the yeah. other day, I'm standing at the, at the, you know, on the curb and it's raining and this guy's cursing because he can't get a cab. And he, he said, so uh-huh. I just walked to him. I said, dude, you got an iPhone? Use Uber. And, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that it's a hard, nasty problem getting, you know, a ride, not, you know, finding a cab, but they just solve the sure. problem. So they don't have to, they don't have to market it. It markets itself. And it sounds like Stripe's the same way that you guys have built something that's so easy to use and is so quick to get up. And it's such a painful problem that you're just like, fine, just we don't have to tell anybody. They'll, they'll, our, our, everyone will do it for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I um, so definitely flattered by sort of that Uber comparison, and I think there's definitely some amount of truth to that in that. Uh, Most of the stories on Hacker News about Stripe have not been the stories that we wrote. They've been other people talking about their experiences with Stripe and how they got on with it and how they liked it. and And we were sort of really happy about that. And that's kind of the that's the ultimate thing for us when like a user of Stripe has a sufficiently good experience that they then want to write about it and tell others about it. Uh, And and so
0: we do on the show when we talk about. We've had a couple conversations about Stripe. And uh, Justin says, "Oh, it only took me a day or so to integrate." And I'm like, "A day? It took me like an hour. What? What were you doing? <laughs> Did you like an app for
1: hours?" Well, I or was yeah. testing as well. That's I included testing.
0: It'd be like an hour, and that's because I'm a slow reader of the documentation. I kept getting distracted, <laughs> checking my email. It was like nothing.
2: Yeah, um, but uh, but yeah, like I think that I mean, at some point, we may decide to do some marketing or sort of take things. I mean maybe there isn't as tightly knit a developer community in other countries. And so we need to sort of get the word out a little bit more or who knows. But for now, I guess we feel it's a really good kind of, um, I mean, pressure is the wrong word, but just kind of, if we don't do marketing ourselves, it means that we just need to make sure the product is really good at all times. Because, you know, if we ever sort of mess up on that in any way, then people will just like stop telling their friends about it and we will stop growing. And so uh, to, to really depend on your users like that for, for all of your growth, I think, is a, a really good way to sort of keep yourself honest. Uh, and so for as long as that works out for us, I think we'll be pretty happy with it.
0: What are some of the biggest, um, or if there have been any, what have been some of the biggest pivots or, or, or false starts that you've had where you thought something was a great idea and then halfway down the path you realized it was really dumb or wasn't going to work?
2: Um, you know... There haven't been any huge ones yet. Uh, I suspect that uh, we will make, you know, large shifts in product direction in the future. Like maybe we'll try something and realize it's not going to work out very well and have to shift. But so far, you know, we really just set out to build this really nice developer-oriented payment system. And, you know, that, that's essentially what Stripe is today. Um, we have gone through a couple of iterations, say on our API, in that initially the API was not actually RESTful. Was more like HTTP RPC. Um, And we had a fairly strenuous internal debate as to whether or not uh, REST was sort of too much complexity or whether you did, in fact, just want RPC over HTTP. Uh, Kind of similarly, our webhook system, as Ross wrote about yesterday, just went through sort of a a fairly major overhaul. And so there have been some things like that. But there, I guess, I'm not sure if it's fair to call those pivots or not, or if they're just kind of learning from your experiences and refining things in the product.
0: Those are just, yeah, those are just sound like those are refinements and iterations. It wasn't like you were a different kind. You changed strategic direction. Sounds like you guys pretty much had the idea more or less right out of the gate, which is nice.
2: Um, Yeah, or or at least, you know, so far. (laughs) Um, Right. Yeah, yeah. Stripe today definitely is the same idea that it was in the beginning.
0: Right, right. Um, Justin, did you want to ask any more questions about the company before? I was going to ask a little bit about um, Go Back in Time. I I think it'd
1: be nice to go back in time. Plus, also the show, by by the time it's edited together, it's going to be quite a long one. So, I think it'd be good to move on to that now.
0: According to Wikipedia, um, it cites you. It it describes you as an Irish scientist and entrepreneur from County Limerick. So, it says you were the forty-first young scientist in technology. You won. I'm sorry, you were the winner of the forty-first Young in Technology Exhibition in 2005 at the age of sixteen, and uh, you were the runner-up the year before. so after you after high school, I think you went straight to MIT. Is that correct?
2: That's right. That's right. I actually didn't do my last year of high school. I went sort of. Uh, I guess I was kind of impatient to to get started on something else, and so I for my last year of high school started at MIT.
0: Wow, that's that's quite a, a jump. So, um, in I according to the research I did, you dropped out of MIT to start a company called. Uh, I, I hopefully I'm pronouncing you right, Octomatic. That's correct. And yep. went through the Y Combinator. Um, yep. I know we talked a little bit before the show that you you didn't want to spend too much time on this because you feel like the story's been told. But if you could just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, give us a, just a real quick synopsis of like how long you were at MIT and how mm. you get, how you ended up going into Y Combinator and starting a company at such a young
2: age. Yep. Um, so basically, what happened is because I ended up uh, starting MIT so young, and I decided that I sort of had a little bit of time to um, you know experiment with something else, and so. Uh, I started at MIT and really liked it, and I was going to major in physics and math, and you know that was all great. But at the same time, I was also kind of convinced that I didn't actually want to be a physicist or a mathematician. Uh, it was pretty clear that sort of, software is where many, or if not most, of the interesting things in the world are happening. And so, yeah, like I say, I, I started when I was 17. I was pretty young. And, and because of that, I, I decided to take a year off and just sort of try a startup and see what that was like. Um and so I was a co-founder of Octomatic, and Octomatic was going to become an eBay competitor uh, in that we were really kind of interested in this notion of providing liquidity in non-new goods. Um, and it was kind of interesting, it was just like this really brief um, but, but fantastic introduction to what a startup is like, and that the whole thing was really short. Uh, we started the company, we built the first version of the product, we took a little bit of investment uh, we launched it. We got some users, and and ten months after we incorporated the company, it was it was acquired. Uh, and so, like the whole thing just really wasn't very much time. But it was this really nice introduction to what it meant to be a startup, how you should run it, like what building a product was like, how it's you know full of ups and downs, and all these things. And after that, I went back to MIT. Um, but uh, I guess I, I I'm really glad that sort of was able to get that experience and, and lucky enough to get that experience as, at at a pretty young age. Um, so when you so, dropped, so
0: you finished your, yeah. first, your freshman year and then what, went through like the summer program?
2: Uh, so it was actually, the, the, the timing is a little bit complex, but uh, in that Automatic actually went through the winter program. Um, but I didn't, I, I wasn't there for that because I was actually at MIT. But, but yes, yeah, so, uh, Automatic was actually a winter 07 YC company.
0: And what year were you in school at that time? I was at
2: 2010.
0: So were you, a, okay, so that was I was, your- a, I
2: was a freshman at the time.
0: Freshman. Okay, so you, so wow. So you had just gone through your freshman quarter or halfway through your semester and you're like, screw it. (laughs) And we're moving on. I mean, Um, that's right. I mean, most people are just still just adapting to being in college. And and not only that, you'd already skipped a year of high school. I mean, that was, you're on the super accelerated plan, it sounds like.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I mean, again, I was just kind of lucky, I think, that I had a little bit more time than other people to play with. And so I was free to go do something crazy like that.
0: Yeah, Justin, I'd qualify that as luck pretty much, wouldn't you? Just Yeah.
2: That's, it. <laughs> yeah, that's what on. all is.
0: <laughs> Just as luck. As in not lucky. <laughs> like hard work and talent. So you went through that and then so when you sold their company, did you stay on with the acquiring company for any length of time? Or was it kind of like you know
2: I did, wait? I did. I actually became their director of engineering. and okay. uh, I did that for uh, I guess about a year or so.
0: And how old were you at the time?
2: Uh nineteen.
0: So meet our new director of engineering. He's 12, is basically the conversation. <laughs> it was like Doogie Hauser. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it feel weird or awkward here? Because I'm sure you had people working for you who were in their 40s or something, right?
2: Yeah, they, they, there was a little bit of that. But by and large, they were they were pretty good about it. That's pretty amazing. So you did
0: that, and then you went back in to, to MIT for, what, a year or two? How long were you yeah, there?
2: Uh, a year. So basically, I went back to MIT to decide, did I want to become a physicist or a mathematician and do this whole academia thing? Um and I was kind of I was sort of fifty fifty and I was going back as to whether or not I I wanted to do that or not. Uh, and after a year at MIT, I was fairly sure that that I did not want to become a physicist or a mathematician. And so back to technology it was.
0: Okay, so yeah, so you're not not your stripe. So you finished in total what two years of MIT or yeah even yeah less? exactly yeah About two years. Yeah. So what is your perspective on um Peter Thiel's sort of no college you know movement? I mean, it sounds to so, me like if you're talented enough to get into Harvard or MIT, you probably don't need to go unless you want to get an advanced degree and work in academia. Is that is that kind of the gist of what he's saying?
2: Um, I think there's so my views on it are fairly nuanced, actually, and that I think that it's a really good experience for the vast majority of people. Uh, you know, because that-
0: one thing I would say though is you're like the perfect case study. He would probably use you as an example. So it's uh, interesting to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, like,
2: to, to be honest with you, I don't know. And that I think there's there may be a little bit of throwing... Okay, two sides. One, I think that there's a little bit of throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to college, and that I think that college does have a, a, a ton of benefit, and, and there's a lot of really good aspects to it, and people learn a lot and develop really meaningful connections. And a lot of the people who, uh, I mean... For better or worse, uh, many of the most successful people in the Valley, if not most of them, are actually extremely educated. And, I mean, you, you know, they can argue or they, they may argue that sort of the education is fairly incidental, but, you know, that may or may not be the case. The jury is somewhat out. Uh, certainly it's the case that for many of them, their closest partners are people they met through these educational uh, institutions, uh, and by that I mean professional partners. Um, on the other hand... I was sort of at MIT actually pretty uninspired by, uh, by kind of the pedagogical aspects of it and found that sort of really uninnovative and uninspiring. And so like the, the group of people at MIT are incredible. And I've, I've very rarely and maybe even never sort of encountered like a, a group of people like that in such a density of, of sort of some particular kind of person or, or that particular kind of person. But, I mean, like, the classes themselves, I mean, they're decent, they're fine, but they're they're really not all that fantastic. And, and I don't think, actually, MIT, the institution, cares all that deeply about the undergraduate educational experience. Educa- MIT is mostly a, a research institution and not an institution that tries to sort of impart as much knowledge to people in four years as it can, or one that tries to you know, develop and nurture you as a person or, or whatever else. Yeah, that, um, and so... That- Oh,
0: I'm sorry. I was just um, I was just going to say, you know, my, at my alma mater, University of Chicago is very similar in that regard. Yeah. It's a research institution. And it's fun. the reason I was kind of laughing is that's exactly the way I felt, was that, okay, yeah. you take all these smart kids, we'll throw them into an auditorium, we'll get one of our lecturers to get up there, and then we'll just yeah. get some hard problem sets or whatever, yeah. and then we'll go back to research. Um, right,
2: right. You know. Yeah, I think there's 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 some element of that, and I think that I mean that's a little bit I think unfortunate just because there are so many incredibly exciting things that technology uh, facilitates in education, and just I mean even kind of without technology, there are I I think you could do much much better if people really really cared, Um, and so uh, yeah, I guess for me sort of I was. I, I felt like I had found sort of a, a really good group of people and I was pretty comfortable with sort of the social aspects and I didn't feel like I was missing out on much by sort of not doing the four years from sort of a, a personal development standpoint. And uh, and then from like a, an educational, pedagogical, academic kind of perspective, well, I, I didn't actually think it was all that great anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I'm really excited by some of the changes that are starting to happen now with things like, uh, you guys may have seen, um, Stanford has started to, uh, they did last semester AI class.org yep. and ML class.org. And those guys are now actually starting companies to try to kind of uh, expand that more widely. Is it like Coursera or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's obviously stuff that Khan Academy is doing. There are a lot of very small, but also really cool startups like Quizlet that are thinking about things sort of a little bit more in the fringes, like how you do language learning in a better way. And so, uh, I, I don't know what kind of, what the outcome here is going to be. And, uh, but, uh, I think that it's, <laughs> we we can probably agree. It's a, it's a fairly complex problem. I definitely don't agree with the, uh, the kind of knee jerk. Let's just get rid of college. College has no value. Uh, you know, we should all just skip it all together in mindset. And I think there's, there's some amount of that in the technology community. And I think that that's kind of short-sighted.
0: Right. Right. Well, um, I, I know you didn't want to focus too much on, you know, the past, so I wanted to, um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I appreciate you uh, humoring me for a minute. <laughs> sure, sure. But I just want to ask you um, maybe one more question, and uh, then yeah. we'll, we'll let you go and get back to building Stripe. But um, another two big, I, I don't know, uh, two companies that are sort of in your space um, that are getting attention, I'd be curious sort of what your take uh, is on them and, and how they they may or may not be positioned near mm-hmm. where you are is we pay in Stripe and um and uh we pay in square.
1: I, what, and Koala is well another one. Right,
0: yeah. So what are your thoughts on those?
2: So is what was the third one?
1: Uh Guala Guala? Oh Dwala. Uh, no, Dwala. Dwala, sorry Duala, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Dwala. Yep.
2: So they're all interesting companies in their own right. Um and they're all doing things that are I mean kind of related to Stripe in that they're doing payments, but they're all in kind of fairly different spaces. Um WePay is possibly the most similar in that they also are about facilitating online transactions, but Stripe is really about helping developers and helping people building things. Whereas WePay is much more about the individual. I will set up a donation page, or I will, you know, set up something to collect money for my fraternity, or something like that. Right. And that that's just kind of really not a use case that Stripe addresses or has even tried to address. And so, in that sense, we have kind of very non-overlapping uh, markets. And I think that sort of. Uh, on top of that, Stripe, we 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 think of ourselves as kind of really as an infrastructure company and, and just building this kind of ubiquitous and really easy-to-use kind of piping that people can then use to build other things. And so I think at some point, somebody might build WePay on top of Stripe, or indeed WePay might build WePay on top of Stripe. But we sort of, I guess, think of ourselves as sort of operating at a slightly different layer. Yeah. Um, Square, I think, uh, I mean, obviously they're doing kind of pretty interesting things in in the real world instead of enabling credit card acceptance for, you know, taco trucks and designers and hairstylists and everything else. Um, I, again, think that that's, I mean, obviously it's a different use case. Uh, in the sense that, I mean, they're doing offline transactions and we're doing online transactions. But I think it's also a different use case in in, in an even bigger way. Uh, and that's that with Square, they're sort of providing credit card acceptance to people who would be accepting payments whether or not Square existed. They're just enabling them to now accept this other kind of payments. But like the hairstylist and the taco truck and everything else, they all got paid before Square. Square is a new way for them to get paid. Whereas with Stripe, we're really kind of competing with inertia and we're, we're really competing with with totally different ways of, of building a business and possibly even not building a business at all. And so for a lot of our users, if Stripe didn't exist, they would maybe monetize with an iOS app, or they might monetize through advertising, or they might just decide that monetization was too much hassle and not even build a thing at all. And so we think of Stripe as sort of much more facilitating the construction creation of all of this like new class of stuff that just wasn't happening before, uh, and it's definitely not the case that we're just replacing some existing payment mechanism for these people. And so I think there's a very big difference in, sort of in focus uh, in that way. Um, and then with Dwolla, uh, I guess they're kind of the, the hardest to judge in some sense, in that they're they're just really trying to do this this very difficult and, and ambitious and hard thing, which is construct an entirely new payment network from scratch. And so they are basically trying to build a new Visa. And they're doing that, again, sort of mostly focused on offline businesses and, like, the kind of just paying at the register sort of use case. Um, they're, again, sort of, they're actually a layer below Stripe, in a way, in that Stripe is about sort of facilitating these transactions and integrating into websites and building all this great infrastructure for people. We operate on top of the Visa infrastructure for actually sort of making that transaction happen. And, you know, if duala were to gain a ton of acceptance and usage, well, then, you know, we would probably build on top of the duala infrastructure. And so I guess I, I'm pretty curious to see how things play out for them and that it's a, it's a pretty gutsy uh, attempt. Um, and, I mean, it, people have sort of tried it before and haven't had a ton of success, but, I mean, they seem like smart guys, and I think they're going into it with their eyes open, and so I, I hope they do well.
0: So I have, uh, actually, I lied because I actually have one more question. <laughs> in, in the use case of a marketplace like Inifu or Airbnb, you have... two two sides of the coin. You have the people paying and the people receiving the money and the marketplace Mm -hmm. ends up taking a percentage of the transaction or maybe a service fee on top of it. Mm -hmm. And for us to facilitate that, we end up having to use Stripe to accept payments. Then we have to move money from our bank account, um, you know, from Stripe to our bank account and then our bank account to this other service to do the ACH payments or whatever. Is there any, is, is that something that Stripe would ever consider doing in the future?
2: We, we would consider doing that. Uh, we, we've definitely, we, we hear this a lot when people listen and it's sort of, they would like us to have. And we've still no immediate plans, but it's definitely possible. Yeah,
0: because I, w- I would almost think that it, would, it could work to your advantage in the sense that if you had a su- some successful uh, clients that had marketplaces mm-hmm. with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or if not millions of customers, then all yeah. of their users or a large percentage of them could have a good reason to become Stripe, set up Stripe accounts, which would then make it that much more prevalent, I would think.
2: Uh, yeah, that, that, that's true. And also, just, I mean, it is, it is actually a surprisingly kind of common pain point for people that they, they want to send money to others. And the same with that, I guess, previous to Stripe, like the mechanisms for receiving payments weren't all that great. Today, now the mechanisms for sending them are still pretty deficient. And that, that's definitely a fairly closely related problem. We, I, I could certainly see us trying to solve
0: that at some point. Yeah. Cause I, I would definitely say that for us of the two problems, the sending is way harder than the receiving receiving yeah. is luckily we companies like Stripe are sort of making that easy and solving it. But uh, the sending yeah. it is, is the real pain. So yeah, I'd agree. Well, Patrick, I uh, just want to thank you for spending so much time with us and answering our questions and actually doing a, an interview that spanned two days. So yes, thank you very uh, much. Sure.
1: It's been really awesome. Yeah.
0: Really appreciate it. I and, knew. uh, we're already big fans of Stripe uh, we're going to be using it for any foo and I'm sure we'll have uh, more to say about it as we continue to use it and uh, yeah we wish you uh, wish you guys the best of luck thank you I like bye alright well uh, that's a wrap we're out